Well, good morning, fellow sufferers. Wow, this is pretty cool up here. It also explains why most of you are here. Steve puts out in the weekly word, usually what's happening in the coming week, and I thought it might be good to just sort of keep it on the, on the DL, the topic for today, because who wants to hear a seminar on martyrdom, right? But I can tell, with all this up here, it's a much more attractive thing to see. However, um, as sobering as a topic martyrdom might be, it's really essential. And I hope that it can keep your attention for this hour because it's, it's truly a proof of Christianity. We have the cross. We have all the apostles except the one we're reading from this summer were martyred. It proves Christianity is real. And so with that little poke, I'm hoping that that will uh, tickle you enough to, to entertain this difficult subject. What is a martyr? Some people may not be familiar with the term. It comes from a word that means witness. But the definition we have in English has migrated to this meaning, one who voluntarily suffers death as the penalty for refusing to renounce their religion. I'd like to read a little bit from a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody anybody familiar with this book? Some, okay, good. In 1562 or 3, John Fox uh, set out to write this book where he starts with the apostles and the tradition that we know that how they were martyred all the way through uh, his day. And you can see it's a substantial writing. I'd like to read a couple pages to give us the background of, of what this subject is about. It also introduces us to someone who's actually in Smyrna. In the time of the same Marcus, a great number of them who which truly professed, truly professed Christ, suffered most cruel torments and punishments, among whom was Polycarp the worthy bishop of Smyrna, of those and, of whose end and martyrdom I thought it here not inexpedient to commit to history. He, uh, I'll paraphrase a bit. You'll enjoy the old English, I'm sure. When the persons who were in search of him were close at hand, he was induced for the love of the brethren to retire to another village to which, notwithstanding, the pursuers soon followed him. And having caught a couple of boys dwelling thereabout, they whipped one of them till he directed them to Polycarp's retreat. The pursuers, having arrived late in the day, found him gone to bed in the top room of the house, whence he might have escaped to another house if he would. But this he refused to do, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Hearing that they were come, he came down and spoke to them with a cheerful and pleasant countenance, so that they were wonderstruck, who, having never known the man before, 
now beheld his venerable age and the gravity and composure of his manner and wondered why they should be so earnest for the apprehension of so old a man. He immediately ordered a table to be laid for them and exhorted them to eat heartily and begged them to allow him one hour to pray without molestation, which, being granted, he rose and began to pray and was so full of the grace of God that they who were present and heard his prayers were astonished, and many now felt sorry that so venerable and godly a man should be put to death. When he had finished his prayers, wherein he made mention of all whom he had ever been connected with, small or great, noble or vulgar, and of the whole church throughout the world, the hour came for their departure. And they set him on an ass and brought him to the city. There met him the Irenaic Herod and his father Nicetes, who, taking him up in their chariot, began to exhort him, saying, What harm is it to say, Lord Caesar, and to sacrifice, and to save yourself? At first he was silent. But being pressed to speak, he said, I will not do as you advise me. When they saw that he was not to be so persuaded, they gave him a rough, rough language and pushed him hastily down, so that he, in descending from the chariot, he grazed his shin. But he, unmoved, as if he had suffered nothing, went on cheerfully, under the conduct of the guards, to the stadium. There, the noise being so great that few could hear anything, a voice from heaven said to Polycarp as he entered the stadium, Be strong, Polycarp, play the man. No one saw him that spake, but many people heard the voice. When he was brought to the tribunal, there was a great tumult as soon as it was generally understood that Polycarp was apprehended. The proconsul asked him if he were Polycarp. When he assented, the former counseled him to deny Christ, saying, Consider thyself and have pity on thine own great age. And many other such like speeches, which they were wont to make, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, say, away with the atheists. Then Polycarp, with a grave aspect, beholding all the multitude in the stadium, waving his hand to them, gave a deep sigh, and looking up to heaven, said, Take away the atheists. The proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eight and sixty years have I served him. He never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Again they urged him, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Polycarp replied, Since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you express it, affecting ignorance of my real character, hear me frankly declaring what I am. I am a Christian. And if you desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day and you shall hear. Hereupon the proconsul said, I will have wild beasts and I will expose you to them unless you repent. Call for them, replied Polycarp. For repentance with us is a wicked thing if it is to be a change from the better to the worse, but a good thing if it is to change from evil to good.
I will tame you with fire, said the proconsul, since you despise the wild beasts, unless you repent. Then said Polycarp, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished? But the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, you are ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. The proconsul sent the herald to proclaim thrice in the middle of the stadium, Polycarp hath professed himself a Christian. Which words were no sooner spoken, but the whole multitude of both Gentiles and Jews dwelling at Smyrna, with outrage, fury, shouted aloud, This is the doctor of Asia, the father of the Christians, and the subverter of our gods, who hath taught many not to sacrifice nor adore. They now call on Philip, the Asiarch, to let loose a lion against Polycarp, but he refused, alleging that he had closed his expedition. Exhibition. Then they unanimously shouted that he should be burned alive. For his vision must needs be accomplished, the vision which he had when he was praying and saw his pillow burnt. The people immediately gathered wood and other dry matter from the workshops and baths in which service the Jews, with their usual malice, were particularly forward to help. When they would have fastened him to the stake, he said, Leave me here as I am, for he who giveth me strength to sustain the fire will enable me also, without your securing me with nails, to remain without flinching in the pile. Upon which they bound him without nailing him. So he said thus, O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. As soon as he had uttered the word, Amen, the officers lighted the fire. And I'll spare you the, the details of the, the burning. I think as we look at the, the short passage uh, to Smyrna, you'll see the alignment uh, the background is what was happening in Smyrna, what kind of persecution there was, who was against them, and what they were willing to do. It's interesting also that when you look at this definition, I think we've lost it. Well, the definition for martyr, which... Okay. Um, the definition, uh, which if you saw, I read, it also includes a synonym, which is common in Google. You Google a word, they give you the definition, they give you a synonym. The synonym provided for martyr is polycarp. So it's well attested. So when we talk about suffering, uh, I myself feel ashamed sometimes that we, we sort of mock at suffering, like they don't have my favorite flavor of ice cream or something, and we, or we where's the remote, you know, and we joke about suffering. In this context, it's really a, a it can be a grotesque subject. They would take Christians and sew them up in in skins. 
and set the wild dogs loose on them. They would put their clothes on them that were soaked in, in candle and wax, put them in the emperor's garden and light the Christians. This is what was going on in Smyrna. And so it causes us to think soberly about our Christian worldview and what suffering means and, and how Jesus meets us at this juncture. So the Lord Jesus' words here to the Church of Smyrna make us think soberly about these things. Smyrna itself is a, is a city in Turkey. It's on the coast. It would be present-day Izmir, if you've been there or you're familiar with the geography. Smyrna gets its name from a, a fragrant uh, resin uh, obtained from certain trees, uh, especially there in the Near East, and it's used for perfume and for medicines and incense, also for embalming. And so you see the, the word myrrh, that's what myrrh, Smyrna, myrrh, that's why it's, it was their primary export. They had that, they exported it, it gained the name of Smyrna since changed to Izmir. You're, I'm sure you remember where you've heard of myrrh before, frankincense, gold frankincense and myrrh. Uh, myrrh was an essential element in Exodus for the, the priestly uh, incense that they made. And it was also mixed with the wine that Jesus was given uh, when he hung on the cross. So in many other places. So myrrh has this uh, common use. It was bitter to the taste, but if it were crushed and burned, it produced a, a pleasant, fragrant aroma. And so having learned a little bit about Polycarp and what went on in Smyrna, you can make the connections pretty quickly. Uh, the, the, the suffering, the crushing, the burning, and yet how pleased God was with these people who were faithful unto death. So we only have four verses to Smyrna, uh, but it follows the same uh, pattern. All seven churches have a pattern. Uh, like any letter you would write, you would say, Dear so-and-so, and you'd have some content, and then you would you'd close. And these have a, have a similar pattern. Verses, it says, To the church of. Last week, Phil addressed Ephesus. This week, it's Smyrna. Next week, it's uh, Pergamum. After that, the Lord Jesus self-identifies. And it's very important to see how he does that because it's extremely relevant to what he has to say. This is followed by a statement of, of uh, collective inspection. I like Phil's use of the, of the military idea. Um, the inspector general. He's observing. He's watching what's going on. He's watching us. The lamp is still on. After that collective inspection, uh, he uses that by saying the word, I know. And so there are no secrets. After that, Jesus, it's his response. What is his response to what he observes? And finally, there's a challenge to the individual. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So with that, let's look at these four verses in, in Revelation chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1028. Revelation 2, verses 8 
through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So we'll look at uh, how does the Lord Jesus engage a church like this, a church like Smyrna that's suffering. We'll see three areas. The first is uh, in similarity, because he is like them in their suffering. He's like us in genuine suffering. He says in verse 8, the Lord, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. If we look back in chapter 1, that Steve uh, read for us two weeks ago, there was little hints to all these things that were coming. And in verses 17 and 18, we see, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I live forevermore. So the similarity, when Jesus speaks about suffering, he has been there. He says, he's conveying, I know what you are going through. So this is not some hackneyed comfort like, hey, don't worry, chin up, you'll be fine. Uh, no, he has been there. And so the similarity is, is keen and would bring extreme comfort to those who get this message. In Hebrews, we have the, the, the high priest who's, who's able to comfort because he also suffered in all points like as we have. So he himself has already died and come to life. And so when he tells others who are suffering and facing martyrdom, that's significant. He's basically the God of all comfort, as Paul calls him, and he has now landed in Smyrna where they need him. And so as we talk about death, it's not to raise anxiety, it's not to make anyone fearful but it's really to see how the Lord Jesus engages with this situation. That's where we're going with this. How would you feel if, if Jesus showed up to comfort you when you most needed him? That's what's going on. Can you trust God when faced with death? Can you trust the God of all comfort? Can you trust Jesus who has gone ahead of you suffering death? So the similarity is the first point as Jesus identifies himself as the one who also suffered. The second point is, is a point of familiarity. He not only is like you in your suffering, but he knows your specific suffering. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. Three areas he brings up that were happening in, in Smyrna. 
They were suffering tribulation. And when that takes place, it's easy to really feel like you're all alone. You need company. And that's what he's providing. So I hope you catch the empathy that the Lord Jesus is bringing to, to Smyrna. He's not forsaking them. He also knows their poverty. It's hard to do without. But in saying that he knows their poverty, there's uh, a comfort, but there's an encouragement, but there's also a correction here. It's kind of subtle. He says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. How can that be? Well, when you do without, when you're poor, you run out of your own resources. And when you run out of your own resources, you have to look elsewhere. And you look to the Lord. And when the Lord is all you have, he's all you need. And that's where true, true riches comes from. You're a rich person if you are close to the Lord. And so he's saying, I know your poverty, but you're rich. Slander. Um, when we read about Polycarp, more than once he mentioned the Jews who were present there. And they were not friendly. Indeed, they were antagonistic, hostile to the Christians. They were, um, they were false, claiming to be true, accusing the true that they were false. And that was bringing on more suffering and persecution for the Christians. And so they're referred to here in this passage as a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue is a Jewish place of gathering, and they were opposing the true people of God, the Christians. And so the reference of synagogue of Satan means they were the, the, the Jewish gathering of opposers. And he says they're going to be tested for ten days, put into prison that they might be tested for 10 days. Some people think the 10 days look, look forward from back then in a, in a prophetic way because there turned out there to be uh, 10 Caesars, 10 emperors who were very brutal in persecutions. And so they looked to that historically. Uh, I prefer to see it more as a reference to Daniel. Daniel, you remember in Daniel 1, his three friends, they were being persecuted. They were being uh, asked to deny their faith. And they were resisting. And they were tested for 10 days. And they came out of that testing uh, faithfully and prosperously. And so I take that to that allusion to all that to be an encouragement to the people in Smyrna. Say, we can be like Daniel and Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego, they will test us, but we will be faithful. They can implies that we should view all suffering as basically temporary and ultimately moving us forward. Either the, either the persecution will end or we will end, which ends the persecution. Which brings us really to uh, some theology because it could be that we, we have some distorted or some twisted understanding of what death is for the believer. And so this passage really challenges us to engage with that. 
Our, we may understand that from our parents and maybe from books and movies, friends and family. But what our theology of death is, is very important and it will benefit us to think about it. Because really, when it comes down to it, who can you trust about death? God knows death. In the person of the Lord Jesus, he's been on both sides of death. He's died and is alive forevermore. We can trust what he says about death. So Frenchman in the uh, early 18th century named Henry Milan, we sang his song today, this hymn called It Is Not Death to Die. And what an attitude to have. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and midst the brotherhood on high to be at home with God. Is that what Paul said? To be absent in the body and present at home with the Lord. It is not death to fling aside this sinful dust and rise in strong, exalting wing to live among the just. Hmm. So sound theology here gives us a perspective to live, not only live rightly, but live more peacefully. There's a lot of anxiety about death. Everybody, we're all familiar with in Christ alone. You could probably hum it right here. But it, when fears are stilled and strivings cease, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is healthy understanding of death. And I even see some of the older ones amongst us nodding their heads. Perspective is very important. This takes us to a, an idea which is sort of a strange, the realm of theodicy. Theodicy is, is the, the definition is the vindication of divine goodness and providence in the view of the existence of evil. Theodicy is something that happens when you're trying to justify, you're trying to defend God, as if he needs defending, but when you're with someone who is not willing to believe, and this is a, a great sticking point for people, evil in the world. We have to grab on to this, this tension. Why does God allow suffering? And this passage is a tough one. It, it says explicitly, I know you're suffering. I'm not going to stop it. He knows the devil's about to throw you into prison. I'm not going to stop it. Why not just quit? Can you trust a God that does that? I was with a Christian friend this past, uh, last weekend. Uh, we sat down, we were chatting, and um, he's the brother of my friend, and he said that he is uh, doubting his faith. He'd been raised, he's in his mid-twenties, uh, raised by a Christian in a Christian family. And he's doubting his faith today because his mother is doubting her faith today. His mother is doubting her faith because her close friend has a son. And the son was serving in Iraq. And they're praying for his safety. An IED exploded and he died. Even though they were praying for him, 
And that was too much. So she quit. And so he's quit. When I was about 23 years old, I was fresh out of pilot training. And I had a friend, uh, Sean was his name, Sean Murphy. Funny guy, really good pilot. One of the top sticks in our class. He, uh, we graduated together, and he, he was such a good pilot, he got an F-15. Back in the day, that was state-of-the-art, and that was the best thing around. And the best students got that aircraft. So he went off to fly his F-15, and I heard, got, heard a couple months later that he had flown his F-15 uh, into the ocean. Left his uh, widow and a very small child. It's a friend of mine. I had prayed for him. I would witnessed to him. And he's, he died. But it doesn't shake my faith. So what's the difference? Nothing meritorious on my part, but, but I, I believe that it's because I believe in a God who is and not in a God of my own design. It's extremely important to get to know the God who is. If you, if you dream up a God of your own liking, he will let you down. But if you come to know the God who truly is, as he reveals himself, he will never let you down. Know him as he is, which includes his, his goodness. His goodness. He is very tender. These four, you know why there's only four words, four, four verses given to Smyrna? Because it's like there's a section missing. Of the seven churches, two of them have no rebuke. Five of them, you heard one last week from Ephesus, I know this about you, and it's, it's wrong, it's bad. And he tells them everything that he's upset about. You don't hear that at all to Smyrna. Why not? It's because that's how God is. He is tender. A smoking flax he does not quench. A bent reed he does not break. He is almighty, but he is good. He is tender. I was too busy in, in uh, Revelation to look at the fighter verse that was coming up, but how appropriate from First Peter that we can cast all our anxieties on him because why? Because he cares for you. Do you remember Lucy in the Lion uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia? Lucy, there's a, there's a segment there where uh, Aslan, the lion, is walking away down the beach. And Lucy's there with this other creature, and there's a very short conversation, just a couple words that takes place. He's walking away, and she's going to miss him. And there's a brief discussion about him. He says, well, he's, he's, he's not tame, you know. He's wild. He's, and they have this very short discussion. He says, because he's, he's not safe. But Lucy says, but he is good. And so there's, there's this tension that you have to be able to embrace. 
He's, he's not safe. If you assume safety and security, you will be let down. That's not the, that's not the guarantee we have. He is both unsafe but totally good. So that's a challenge for us to, to embrace this kind of tension. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered from Hebrews 5.8. This is, uh, I would like to read a quote from uh, the Weekly Word two weeks ago, if you remember that one. Uh, it's a quote, I think Steve gave us a quote from Dave Paulson, who's written some very helpful books. I'm in the middle of one right now. And it's about suffering and struggling and, and how troubles change us. I'll just read a couple of, of excerpts from this. It said, God works on us in the midst of trouble because trouble catches our attention. It's a wake-up call. Difficulties make us need him. Faith has to sink roots as profession deepens into reality. So we have to grow. Martin Luther said that hardships were his greatest teacher because they made scripture and prayer come alive. Maybe what we need is a good trial. Struggles force us to need God. And we learn to love the way Christ loves only by experiencing the hard things that he experienced in loving us. It's very powerful and helpful. So can you trust God as he reveals himself? Can you trust God who will allow you to be slandered by liars? Can you trust our God who is good even if he isn't safe? Can you trust God who himself suffered and who will allow you to endure temporary suffering too? Smyrna teaches us to say yes to these challenges. Jesus is similar to those who suffer. He's very familiar with their suffering. And finally, he, he, there's a security in this. He reassures you in your suffering. If we read, reread part of verse 10 and, and verse 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Skipping down, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So simply put, Jesus' command to those who are suffering is to be faithful. Be faithful even unto death. As we heard earlier, be faithful if it's a little bit. Be faithful if it's a lot. Be faithful if it's the ultimate sacrifice. The reward then is a crown of life. The crown, the crown is like when you win a running race. They would give you a wreath, a crown for the victor. And so here... If, you con- if you're a conqueror, if you're an overcomer, if you win, and the believer, those who trust in Jesus, conquer, they overcome, even if you're martyred, you get the crown of life. So it's this reward. Through, by dying, you get the very thing you sacrificed, your life. By dying, you get life. So the crown is life. What is death? What is the second death? 
Uh, we don't have to be too creative here because Revelation itself tells us what the second death is. If we were in Revelation 20, uh, verse 14 would tell us that it's, uh, the second death is the lake of fire. Uh, chapter 21 says it again. Those who are uh, the liars, the immoral people, the long list of people, they will end up in the lake of fire, the second death. And so when he says, do not fear, I think the the people in Smyrna, uh, Polycarp himself, was a disciple of the Apostle John. So this is going from John to Polycarp, and these people are hearing this. Do not fear would, would bring back all those do not fears. Jesus told them before many times, do not fear. Do not fear. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy the body and soul in hell. There is the second death. And so we should view all suffering as temporal, temporary. The crown we will get. And so if, if you're here this morning and you have never repented, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, the second death is for you. You, you will eventually die, like all of us. But to a person who's not a believer, who's not a Christian, the second death comes after the first death, the lake of fire. And so I would just urge you to consider uh, what, what death means. And if, you, if you need to talk more about this, there's many people in this room who would do that eagerly. So Jesus encourages them and reassures them, do not fear and be faithful. There will be no sting of death for those who overcome. So to conclude, I think we have some things to, talk, to, to think about. And we can, we can consider these things via two current events lately. A few weeks back in Manchester, England, there was a bombing. It was at a, a concert with a lot of young people. And uh, 22 people were killed. Have you probably all heard about it? Um, lots of news. In fact, they're still talking about the news. They want to redo the concert, all these things. And it is a tragedy. These terror attacks keep happening. They call it senseless killing. And we would agree. The second event happened really the same week. Within one week of that event... But it was in Egypt. And here, 29 people were killed. They were on a bus coming back, a tour from a, um, a church meeting. They were Coptic Christians, Egyptian Christians. And people dressed up as policemen stopped their, I think it was two buses and another vehicle, and they ordered them to get out. Anybody hear about this one? It wasn't in the news too much. And one by one, they're asked, are you a Muslim? And if they didn't have the right answer, they got a bullet to the head or their throat was slit. And news like that makes Polycarp seem not so far away. Um, 
and it's not quite so newsworthy. Why is that? You had to go looking for it, I think, if you wanted details. I think it's because nobody wants to face this. Not, not just about death, because we're doing that with, with the other terror attacks. They don't want to face this because personally it forces them to engage with reality. Think about it. If someone's, you just get off a bus and you get this one question, and this question determines whether you live or die. Why not just tell them what they want to hear and live? I, I've heard, I've seen that question, that very question asked by skeptics. But to think through a person who would be faced with that situation and not waver. I am a Christian. And die for it. That blows their mind. They don't want to put that above the fold on the front page. Because that has all kinds of other implications. Wow, if they would do that, what does that mean? They, they want to deny a guy who lived 2,000 years ago? What, what, what's up with that? You start unrolling the, the, the ball of yarn, and they have to come to the truth that they do not want to deal with. And so it's not just a, a preference for one genocide or another. This is a, it's a real spiritual battle going on. And so we don't hear about it so much. It's not senseless killing. This is meaningful martyrdom. The meaning is intense. It forces people to face the reality of Jesus. Not something popular in the news. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also gave his life um, the very, very, very end of World War II, when he was, long before he was martyred, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Now, if this seems strange, and I wouldn't be surprised if it does, maybe it's because the gospel we preach is a little bit watered down in such a way that, you know, suffering is, suffering is for people, not in the West, Suffering is for people over there. When in fact, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So the words, Jesus' words to Smyrna force us to contemplate life in the context of death. It is coming. We're all going to die. I don't know if it's sooner or later, but every one of us will die. Death is inevitable, 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 and it is out of our control. But whether we die faithfully, giving true testimony to whatever the context deserves, well, that's up to us. And that's something worth thinking through. As a pilot, uh, I think every pilot knows one of the most hazardous phases of flight is actually in takeoff. That's true because your aircraft is as heavy as it's ever going to be. It's full of fuel. You're also going as slow as you're ever going to go, even though you're accelerating down the runway. So the worst thing that can happen is if you lose thrust. Because there's two things happening. You want to gain enough air to fly, but if you can't take off, you want enough runway to stop. So there's a, you know, I get both of these things. 
and you never want to take off, it's, it would be wrong to even attempt to take off when there's any place in that runway where you can not take off and not stop. It's called category three, you shouldn't take off because you're, you're going to crash. So, but there comes a point when you're taking off that you get airspeed enough that you cannot stop. And one, one pilot will say, committed, which means no matter what happens, we are going. Because to not go would be to run into a brick wall at the end. So once you're committed, you're taking off. And an aircraft commander of mine had a habit. He formed this habit, which I later later adopted, where we're at the hold line, just ready to take off, and he would turn to me and say, co-pilot, which engine are we going to lose on takeoff? And he was putting in my brain the thought that this could happen. And if this happens, we've trained for this. We've done this in the simulator probably hundreds of times. You want to step on the rudder, you want to lean into it a little bit. You want to add as much symmetric thrust as you have. All this stuff would come back, but he's putting it in my mind and everyone, the whole crew, that we might perform as best as possible should the worst thing happen. So today I'm, I'm slipping into your head the thinking process of what to do should you ever be confronted with a very difficult situation. <clears throat> confronted with martyrdom, confronted with denying Jesus Christ who has never wronged you. So it's not a morbid question, nor is it a question for um, so thought to be super Christians. It's a question for you and for you, and you, and you, for every one of us. Are you prepared? Is Jesus Christ who spoke these words to the church of Smyrna a God you can trust? That's the bottom line. Let us each be faithful even unto death.